0: Welcome to 13, a bi weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today I'm talking with Assistant Professor of Political Science, Danielle Lupton. Professor Lupton studies the impact of individual leaders on international security and foreign policy. She is specifically interested in how leaders use the tools of coercion to achieve their foreign policy goals. How Leaders Establish Reputations, and How Individual Backgrounds Influence Policy Preferences. Professor Lupton's forthcoming book, Reputation for Resolve, How Leaders Signal Determination in International Politics, is being published by Cornell University Press and will be available in March. Professor Lupton earned her master's and Ph.D. from Duke University and has been published in a number of journals, including Political Analysis, International Interactions, Political Research Quarterly, and the Journal of Global Security Studies. Professor Lupton has also appeared in the pages of The New York Times, The Washington Post, and as a special guest on CNN. Professor Lupton, welcome to 13.
1: Hi, thank you for having me, and thank you for that kind introduction. Oh, you're
0: welcome. We'll jump right into question one. Fabulous. You've written in the past about the role of veterans in Congress and their importance in constraining White House use of military force. However, the number of veterans in Congress is declining. Do you think this will have a significant effect on how military force is deployed?
1: So if we know, or if we have evidence that, military veterans in Congress vote differently on foreign policy and defense policy issues, then the logical conclusion is that the more veterans we have in Congress, the more likely the Congress might be to step in when it comes to foreign policy matters, particularly the use of force. But what I think is really interesting is that in the article that I published for Political Research Quarterly, I looked at the post-9-11 House, so post-2001, where we know that there are fewer veterans in Congress. And what I found is that the the substantive effect of being a military veteran was really strong.
0: Hmm.
1: Right now, I'm actually working on a project where I'm comparing the effect of Vietnam veterans to other veterans from other cohorts— And here what I'm finding is that you do see kind of a change in the effect of military service over time. My research does show that, as you mentioned, veterans in Congress do have different policy preferences when it comes to the use of force. In particular, what I find is that once military force has been deployed, veterans in Congress are more likely and more willing to assert oversight and control over how those forces are used Mm. um, in theater, as well as when we should redeploy or return those forces to the United States. Logically, the conclusion certainly is that the more veterans we have in Congress, the more active we might see Congress being in terms of f- foreign policy and the use of force. But I find that even in the post9/11 house where you have fewer veterans in Congress, that those that are in Congress, regardless of their political affiliation, are still very active mm. when it comes to foreign and defense policy. So you might so the, the conclusion that fewer veterans in Congress will lead to Congress, being less activist, I'm actually finding might not be the case. They These veterans in Congress might be making up for this entrepreneurial gap um, that has resulted from the decline of veterans in the House. Interesting. Yeah.
0: One of your papers is titled Widow's Congressional Representation and the Misappropriation of a Name. Mm-hmm. In that, you examine how For much of the 20th century, widowhood was the primary path for women into the U.S. Congress. However, little is understood about how widows' gender, familial connections, and name recognition they acquire from their husbands may affect their political behavior. What did you find?
1: Oh, I really like this paper, so I'm so glad you asked about oh, it. Um, and I want to say, too, that this paper is co-authored uh, with a, um, a former Colgate University professor, uh, Stephen Sprick-Schuster, and a colleague of ours, Sahar Parsa, um, of Tufts University. And so what we found in this paper was that contrary to the belief that politicians with dynastic ties or these personal familial relationships in Congress will be less incisive or will be lazier, for lack of a better word, kind of rest on their laurels. Actually, what we find is that widows who run for re-election after they take over their husband's seats, their deceased husband's seats, I suppose, if we're being accurate, Mm -hmm. Um, they are actually more activist in terms of their policies, and they're more willing to break with their husband's voting records. Mm. And even more so, what we find is that they're more liberal than other women in Congress. So what we find is that it's not, you can't just predict how these women are going to vote because they're women. There really does seem to be this interaction between this dynastic affiliation and their gender. And that's what we tease out in the paper. And we're really excited about that paper. Uh, We're submitting it for review very soon. Um, And I'm I'm really crossing my fingers and hoping that it comes out soon. Neat. That sounds great. Thank you.
0: Your forthcoming book is titled "Reputation for Resolve: How Leaders Signal Determination in International Politics." I read a summary that says the book challenges the often publicized view that reputations do not matter in international politics. Can you explain without completely spoiling the book?
1: Sure, and I would like to put in a little plug and say that the book is officially dropping in March, but it is currently available for pre-order, Ooh. both the hardback uh, and the ebook, from Cornell's website. Cool. Um, so. There is a very prominent view among scholars of political science that, pa- that a, a state's or a leader's past actions and their subsequent reputations don't really matter in terms of crisis escalation or the conduct of international conflict. Instead, what these people, whom I in the book call reputation skeptics, argue is that what really matters in terms of how your adversary is going to view you is how much power you have and how important a particular issue is to your national interest. So what you did in the past doesn't matter, because this right now, it's a whole new ballgame, a new scenario. And I challenge that. And what I say instead is that, no, what a leader says and what a leader has done in the past very strongly influence how others will perceive her resolve or her level of fortitude. But I do also in the book argue that these reputations can be conditioned by these factors that reputation skeptics point to. And ultimately, what I show is that not only do leaders, yes, they do acquire reputations, but that these reputations shape the conduct of international diplomacy, negotiations, and crises. So I very strongly challenge the arguments of reputation skeptics who argue that past actions just don't matter in international politics. Hmm. Interesting.
0: So as of the recording of this podcast— We've had three different national security advisors depart from the White House in three years. What impact, if any, does that kind of turnover have on our foreign policy efforts?
1: I think there's a really big problem when you have a White House that is toxic to those who work in it. And I think really what we're seeing here is the Trump administration. The turnover is emblematic of a bigger problem within the Trump administration. So it's not uncommon, actually, for um, there to be changeover in terms of uh, these, these major advisory positions. The amount of changeover is striking. Um, the, the most changeover we've seen uh, besides Trump is the Reagan administration. Hmm. But I think what's actually more important here is the way in which these individuals are being dismissed and why they're being dismissed. We've also now seen uh, massive turnover in the Secretary of Defense, the Secretary of Homeland Security, and the Director of National Intelligence. So the fact that we have many important positions that are currently unstaffed, to me, is the bigger problem for American foreign policy, because you really do need that expertise. And we also have to remember that these bodies and organizations, these agencies and departments within the U.S. government, those are bureaucracies. They need leadership, and so when you're constantly changing that leadership, it really creates this crisis of confidence within the organization, and also one could argue amongst the U.S. public more broadly.
0: Hmm. Was there a golden age for American foreign policy, and if so, when was it?
1: Well, I guess that would depend on who you ask, right? Well, I'm uh, but you. since, you're in your me, since you're asking me, since you're asking me, you know, I'm a little bit of a cynic. I think in that when I teach American foreign policy what i what i teach my students is that what you want is a foreign policy that is not reactive and american foreign policy has a tendency i think to look out and respond to crises and threats without thinking about what are our long-term national interests what are our long-term goals and how does this play into this broader um, question of the larger national interest my research particularly from my book Um, I would actually say that I think Eisenhower did a really good job um, on foreign policy, particularly in the way that he handled the Soviets and he handled Khrushchev. He did a really good job of not being reactive. Um, And certainly there there are problems there. Um, Dulles is a very interesting character, too, in and of his own right. Um, But I think that... It's also important, however, not to romanticize any particular administration, but to think about what did that administration do right, what could they have done better, and then how do we learn from that for the future.
0: On the 75th anniversary of D-Day, you wrote a piece for the Washington Post that explained why an operation like that would be impossible today. Why is that?
1: Oh, uh, because technology, and in particular social media, um, is really difficult, makes it really difficult to keep secrets. Mm -hmm. So I really like that piece. I'm so glad you brought it up. Uh, It was a really fun piece to write. Um, But we have a lot of evidence that people are very cavalier with how they use social media. Um, And of course, in the piece, the argument is not just about social media. But I really think that that's kind of the heart of of what it's trying to get at there. So we have examples of Russian soldiers uh, posting Snapchats and Instagrams uh, of them in Syria when the Russian government, in uniform, when the Russian government has claimed, no, we're not in Syria. (laughs) Whoops. Yeah, and there's actually a discussion in the Pentagon about whether cell phones should be banned because this is such a problem and because people are very cavalier uh, about uh, how they use technology. Um, And in particular, there seems to be a generational shift here um, where millennials and Generation Zers Um, are are less concerned about issues of data privacy, although there is, I think, also some evidence that this might be changing now. Mm. Um, So the main argument I make in the piece is really that it's about how individuals use technology. But I think we've also had this massive explosion in other forms of technology, other forms of what we would call signal intelligence um, or image intelligence, where you can now get really fine-grained detail images from space. Mm. Of um, particular areas of the world. Um, So there's this really cool thing, for example, um, that you can look at nighttime lights data, and you can look and see, you know, in this rural province of. For example, Afghanistan's on my mind, given what's happened recently. You know, there really shouldn't be any people there, and yet we're seeing light pollution. So what's going on there? And we've actually been able, the U.S. government and other states have been able to use that to track movements of of different armed groups, for example. Um, So that's the argument I make in the piece, is that technology more broadly, social media, but also surveillance and uh, intelligence-oriented technologies, make that kind of strategic and surprise attack really difficult nowadays.
0: In 2019, you published an article titled Embedded Deception, Interpersonal Trust, Cooperative Expectations, and the Sharing of Fabricated Intelligence in the Journal of Global Security Studies. That research looks at when and why friendly nations deliberately share and unwittingly accept fabricated intelligence about others. What are some examples of this friendly deception and why was it done?
1: So the main example we look at in the piece is the British... Um, in World War II, on the eve of the Americans getting involved at the end of 1941, cooked up completely fabricated intelligence that they knew was fake, and then shared it with the Americans in an effort to get the Americans into the war earlier. So specifically, the intelligence they cooked up was this argument that the Nazis were um, really trying to make a push into South America to try to get the Americans to be concerned about um, Nazi incursions into this Western sphere of influence. So they knew this information was fake. They created it out of thin air, and they created these really elaborate letters and this really elaborate map about where the Nazis were going to go and how they were going to do it. It's, it's really very, very creative. <laughs> and then they shared that. But the reason why – and the Americans believed it. We have very little – we have no evidence in the piece to, to suggest that the Americans um, ever suspected that this was fake. And the reason why that deception was successful was because you ha- – You had operatives within the British government and the American government at very high levels. For example, in the American side, you know, Wild Bill Donovan, who's this very famous um, character, quote unquote, one could say in the intelligence community, had very close ties to to British um, uh, contemporaries and colleagues. And so because they had these personal established relationships of trust, when you share that information— you assume that your friend is is being truthful with you. Mm -hmm. Now then the broader question of why did the British do it? Well, it's because the Americans, and in particular FDR had sent signals to Churchill and others in the British government that the US was right on the verge of entering the war. And this is a period in the late 1930s, um, 39 through 41, where the British are in many ways kind of holding down the fort (laughs) in Europe um, against the Axis powers And they really need American support. So that's is where you see things like the Lend-Lease program coming in. Mm -hmm. Um, But then FDR sends signals that maybe he's retracting some of that support, for example, changes in the Lend-Lease program. And and what Churchill says, quote-unquote, is that they need to get the Americans in by hook or by crook (laughs) any way possible. Um, And so – Obviously, we don't know what would have happened would the Americans have gotten involved, you know, without um, the unfortunate events of Pearl Harbor. Um, But certainly this is one example of – and the main example we look at uh, where this happened. And it's a really fascinating example. There's such rich, rich, deep history there, particularly Mm -hmm. archival history.
0: So in all the political history you've studied – Uh, is there one person that stands out that you think um, leaders should strive to emulate as the most successful master of international relations? Oh, wow.
1: So I think that in terms of strongly advocating for one's nation state, Bismarck, Otto von Bismarck, uh, the Prussian leader, uh, was a very astute, politician in that regard, uh, particularly regarding his warnings um, for Germany, once he's unified it, um, about a balance of power politics in Europe. I also found that um, Dulles and Eisenhower, from the American perspective, despite their failings, I think had the right approach to dealing with the Soviets, which is to, you know, maintain this calm demeanor. And actually, when Eisenhower is transitioning out of power and Kennedy is coming in. The Eisenhower administration warns the Kennedy administration not to believe the Soviet statements that they've closed the missile gap, which is we know is accurate. They had not closed the missile gap. Um, because, and what happens is Kennedy, the Kennedy administration doesn't take that advice. And there's a massive shift in our – Uh, nuclear weapons policy and our deterrence policy in regards towards Berlin Um, in terms of how we're willing to use nuclear weapons to protect those interests. Um, And my book shows that these changes in policy really undermine the ability of the Kennedy administration to signal their resolve on Berlin and ultimately on Cuba. Um, But I don't know that there's necessarily kind of a a paragon of uh, one's time um, and i'm I'm actually quite reticent to hold up one individual or one administration as this, you know beacon of light and hope. Um, because I think that sometimes when we do that, particularly in the media, um, we forget that these leaders are imperfect. And that's really important, I think, more broadly.
0: Another one of your areas of interest is experimental research in international relations. What what does that entail?
1: So essentially, it's political psychology. Okay. So there's a lot of different ways one could run experiments. Um, But what we're interested in political psychology is understanding how people think about political events or how they process political information. So the way this primarily plays out in my research is that I'm really interested in understanding what people think about foreign policy, and how leaders process, um, excuse me, how individuals uh, process information about international political events. So basically what I do, and the type of experiments I do, is that I give people surveys, and there's normally like a scenario or a vignette, and I vary the type of information they read in the vignette. And so what you can do is you can figure out how does that information affect their views on foreign policy, because you compare people who receive one type of information to people who receive another type of information, we call those treatments, and you can see, well, where do their answers differ? Okay. And if you get a large enough subject subject population, um, you can control for um, what colloquially we might call noise. You can kind of see, like, is there a pattern here? But there are also other types of experiments you can do. There's some really cool stuff like lab experiments mm. where people, you know, look at, like, eye movement tracking or... Um, Do you get sweaty when you think about international (laughs) events? Do you have an emotional response? And there's also some really cool experiments um, that involve like war simulation and gaming where you can see how people respond. Um, Yeah, they're very sophisticated. So I'm slowly moving into that. But primarily what I'm working with um, is how do we kind of run these survey experiments? And it's very similar to what you might do in social psychology um, or uh, economics as well. So there's a lot of really great interdisciplinary synergy there.
0: Nice. Yeah. Kind of. Uh, Coming off of that, in in 2019, you published a journal article about replication crisis. Yes. Uh, In the international relations discipline specifically, you write, I investigate whether student subject pools are comparable across universities by examining how respondents across three subject pools at distinct educational institutions perform on the same survey experiment about crisis bargaining between states. So what did you find?
1: So – what I was investigating there was this argument that has been around since the 1980s that students are terrible subject pools, that the results you get from student samples are not generalizable because... And I think in many ways it's, one, very elitist arguments, but also very ageist arguments, mm. because they're young and they don't really know what they think, or they're a very homogenous population. So I wanted to test that and see if that's true. So what I And, and in particular, I wanted to see, you know, if someone's giving... Um, a survey to undergrads at Harvard, is that the same as if you were to give them a survey at Berkeley or uh, Middle Tennessee State University? I mean, in fact, you'll actually see researchers say, well, it's okay for me to use this sample because I am at Harvard. So these students are smart. And I think that's incredibly elitist. And that makes me really uncomfortable. So I wanted to test that. So what I did was I gave student subject pools at three distinct universities. a public research institution in the Mid-Atlantic, a private research institution in the Mid-Atlantic, and a liberal arts college in the Northeast, the same, the same survey, and I looked to see how do the different treatments or information they get, um, does it have the same effect across all those subject populations? And actually what I found was, yeah, it does for the most part. Um, one of the samples, the public research institution um, in the Mid-Atlantic was much more Republican and conservative than the others. Okay. And so on certain metrics, I did find that mattered. Um, But uh, overall, there really wasn't a big distinction here. And the other thing I did was that I compared those, the responses of students at those three universities to um, subjects from a large, very popular online subject pool called Amazon Mechanical Turk. Mm. And I found that there was not a significant difference across that. And the main conclusion is that, look, student subject pools are not as bad as we think they are, but you do have to be aware that there might be things like partisanship or um, other demographic factors that could influence your treatment if what you're interested in studying is theoretically related to that. So if you're interested in studying something like how does partisanship shape foreign policy views, you probably maybe don't want to use student subject pools because universities tend to draw certain types of students. Some universities are known for being more liberal, some more conservative. So you want to be aware of that. But otherwise, I think student samples are not as bad as we like to say they are.
0: You also teach a political science course titled Silent Warfare, Intelligence, Analysis, and Statecraft. The description states, in part, this course introduces students to the complex and important process of obtaining, analyzing, and using intelligence in American foreign policy. What about modern intelligence gathering most surprises your students?
1: Well, I'm actually teaching that course right now as we speak, Ooh. and I have a, a session this afternoon. I think what surprises students most is that the way that the intelligence community is portrayed in the media and the purpose of intelligence as it's portrayed in the media is not at all how the intelligence community sees itself or how political scientists and people who study security studies understand the purpose of the intelligence community. Hmm. So intelligence is, intel is there to support or inform the policy process. It does not dictate policy. And there's this other argument that's made that intel is not about truth, it's about fact. So it's about evidence-based reasoning and about probability estimates. So there's so this notion that the intelligence community is somehow highly partisan or highly politicized just is factually based on evidence incorrect because these people have very strong professional ethics and they understand the purpose of their role in the broader policy process, which is that they are not there to make policy. They are there to help inform policymakers. And so particularly the comments that Donald Trump has made about the role of the intelligence community are just incorrect. And I think that that really surprises students that they have this idea of what intel is. They also think it's spies out, like, you know, garroting each other. I know that's dark. <sighs> <laughs> you know, but they think it's, you know, they think it's all like Cold War spies, James sure. Bond stuff. And yeah. that's really, that's, One, that's highly inaccurate, but also that's a very small part of – human source intelligence is a very small part of the broader intelligence community. So I think those two things are the biggest surprising
0: for students. Yeah, there's not a lot of films about paperwork and and like, you know, reading uh, reports. Yeah, so there actually are
1: two good films, I think. Um, Yeah, so one is Eye in the Sky with Helen Mirren about uh, drones and what what I think – that, does, that movie does really well as it does talk about probability estimates and collateral damage. Um, and the other one that is known as far as human source intelligence goes is both a book and a movie, and that is Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy. Um, those have gotten good marks for accuracy. But things like Zero Dark Thirty, no, it, it's bad. Not <laughs> um, Goldfinger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, Goldeneye is my personal favorite. Nice. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yes.
0: <laughs> um, you're a public user of both Twitter and Instagram. What role do these platforms play in your work as a political scientist and as a professor?
1: So one of the things I love about Twitter in particular is the opportunity to connect with with scholars that I might not have had on my radar before. So the great thing about Twitter is that you can put your ideas out there, and then people respond and you can connect. There are tweet-ups at conferences where I've gotten to meet some other really cool people, particularly people working in civil-military relations. And Twitter, I think, is also a great platform for um, promoting one's work, which I know academics are often reticent to do. But my view on that is that, you know, we write this and I want people to read it. Um, And it's also, I think, a great platform in terms of support. So if I had something that uh, maybe didn't work as well in the classroom as I wanted. I can go on Twitter and say, "Hey, you know, I tried this in the classroom. Um, does anyone else have experience with this?" Or, for instance, I'm really interested in uh, incorporating simulations into my research. So, uh, in my research and my teaching, so I posted on Twitter, you know, asking, "Hey, academic Twitter, has it, does anyone have any information on wargaming simulations for the classroom?" And people will respond, and they will share. And that kind of openness and um, support system, I think, is really, really invaluable, especially if you're on the tenure track.
0: Hmm.
1: Very neat. Yeah.
0: So we're at question 13. Um, so you mentioned about uh, conflict simulations and war gaming uh, I am a big board game geek myself, yes. and I specifically love old board games. And I'm I'm very curious how you use these types of – how you can use these types of things in the classroom or what you look for in a, in a conflict simulation. Um, tell me a little bit about that.
1: So for the classroom use, I like to use board games in particular, but use them with a pedagogical purpose. So what you have to do is you have to frame for students – how and why you're using the board game, um, and then go from there and then kind of debrief. So, in my war theories and some excuse me, war theories and practices seminar, we use risk to talk about balance of power politics. I have toyed with the idea of using the game diplomacy. Um, particularly for, Fundamentals of International Relations and some of the more introductory courses. Although I haven't quite pulled the trigger on doing that, um, but I know some some of my other colleagues. For example, a Professor Valerie Markaviches, who's also in my department, has had great success with using um, multi multi week uh, simulations, and that's something I'd really like to do. Nice. On a personal level, I am also a big board game aficionado, and there are two games that I would highlight for listeners if they are into. Uh, the Cold War or World War II slash World War I. The first is Axis and Allies, which is a rabbit hole. Uh, you can get multiple different types uh, with different campaigns. Lots of fun. Really enjoy that. Particularly Axis and Allies, the World War I edition. Mm. I, I, I really enjoy. And the other game is called Twilight Struggle, which is about the Cold War. And my goodness, is that an intense and fun game? Uh, but, but you have to be willing to devote many many hours to it. But I do tell my students every semester, if you're enjoying this class, you should play Axis and Allies or Twilight Struggle, regardless of the class, because I find that it is applicable to all of these issues in international relations.
0: And that was 13.
1: Great. Thanks, Dan.
0: Thank you, Professor Lupton, for chatting with us today. Also, special thanks to Colgate student Kate Norton, a member of the class of 2020, who helped with some of the research for this episode. Make sure to tell your friends and family about the podcast and let us know how we're doing. Email 13 at colgate.edu, that's 13 the number, with your thoughts or ideas and let us know if you have any questions that you'd like to have answered. I'm sure we can find someone to help out. Have a wonderful week and keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Ketrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth faculty
1: research stories.